You're listening to Sermon Audio from Grace Community Church of Gresham, Oregon. For more information about service times and ways to follow us online, please go to gracecc.net. That's gracecc.net. And thanks for joining us. My name is Jim Hislop, and I'm delighted to be here this morning. All the stallions are on a much-needed rest. This is a great weekend for them to go, so... They go out to the pasture and find an old nag that's in retirement, <laughs> drag them back into service. I'm delighted. It's an honor, even though it's a lot of work. <laughs> Before I begin my message this morning, I want to honor someone uh, who is very special and very dear to me. 52 years ago today, at 8.36 Eastern Standard Time, this young couple were married. And uh, I, I rise in the gates, and I call her blessed. After two children and six grandchildren, 15 jobs, and as many dwelling places, she says she still loves me. You're witnessing the miracle of God's grace. <laughs> Much more needed by her than by me, but um, it's been a, a delightful journey, and uh, delighted to call her my wife. Oh, second picture. That was the getaway car. Yeah. <clears throat> a few weeks ago, not a few weeks ago, a few months ago, I was doing a project with my son around the house, and he said to me something that I never expected. He said, you know, Dad, one of the things I notice about you is when you make a decision, you just go ahead and do it. Measure cut. Now, I wasn't sure whether he was accusing me of being Larry the Cable Guy, you know, just get her done, or whether he really noticed that. He did. He seemed to. And I responded to him by saying something like, well, when you know you're right, you can just move ahead with confidence. Now, how many of you hear that as arrogant? Uh, how many of you hear that as confident? All right, so I've got a few friends around this morning. I don't think I was being arrogant, although I'm certainly capable of that. I, I think it was a genuine sense of confidence in what I was doing, having done it a million times before. That's one of the great advantages of age. You've done everything a million times before. You just have. And so you tend to have that confidence whether you should or not sometimes. We're living in a pretty chaotic world. A world full of uncertainties as well as a world full of strange certainties. Seems each day that passes things we we used to be pretty certain about are, are under scrutiny. And, and things we hadn't even thought much about all of a sudden are life-altering certainties. Where did that come from? Where, when did that happen? Chaos seems to be the order of the day, whether it's socially, where social norms of, of a past day are laughed at and ridiculed as passe, 
And we're hearing a whole new vocabulary like cancel culture and woke and intersectionality. Just this week, the Hallmark movies were declared fascist propaganda. The Hallmark movies <laughs> by somebody who has a loud voice. Politically, you know, the division, the anger, the rancor. Morally, I can't imagine my parents, let alone my grandparents, showing up today, hearing some of the language that's used on television programs, including the news and especially commercials. And then even spiritually, I can't tell you how my heart sank when I saw this picture. A church, this is their manger scene, a church in Southern California. I'm going to make a political point out of a, the birth of Jesus. We're living in a, uh, a pretty uh, confused world. And all this stuff can be disconcerting and, in fact, it can be silencing. Almost anything you say with any kind of certainty is met with criticism of bigotry or racism or sexism or homophobia or xenophobia or fascism, and the list goes on and on and on. probably know more of those names than I do. And so I want to uh, think together with you for a few minutes this morning, this last Sunday of uh, the year, and the first Sunday not only of a new year, or next year, next Sunday will be but the first Sunday of a new decade. The 20s are coming back. <laughs> think about it. <laughs> I'm not sure if any of you were here then, but um, they're coming back. And so I want us to think about that together. Not, not with arrogance, but with confidence. There's a, a fine but normally clear line between arrogance and confidence. I, I think we have a lot to be confident about in a world of uncertainty. We'll explore that. I also think we are drawn to people who are genuinely confident. And I want people to be drawn to Jesus' followers. Not be repelled by Jesus' followers. In fact, that might be a way of determining the difference between confidence and arrogance. Do we come across as confident in our walk with God or arrogant how people respond may be a way of telling the difference. I also think the lack of confidence keeps us from accomplishing many good things. It might even cause us to be afraid of trying something at times that it would be good for us uh, to do. Now, sometimes a sense of confidence is ill-founded already mentioned, it may not be confidence, it may be arrogance. Often an indicator of which it is, is how loudly you have to say what you're so sure about. <laughs> Sometimes it's just plain bullheadedness. And so the confidence I'm talking about this morning is, is a confidence that must be held in an attitude of humility. 
Humility involves a sense of dependence and trust in God and others. We've just spent the last four Sundays and Christmas Eve looking at some of the characters of Christmas. Joseph and Elizabeth and Mary and the wise men and the shepherds. And apart perhaps from the wise from the wise men, each of these people were people of low estate and stature in their own culture. Each of them was surprised by an announcement. Each of them initially expressed a, a healthy fear, but ultimately they moved ahead with confident obedience. And over 2,000 years later, we're talking about them as people of, with incredible faith, humble obedience, serious players in God's great plan of the ages. Remember them for those things. We do a lot of second-guessing, rehashing, wishing, doubting. A lot of time and energy sometimes is spent wondering, what if, if I only had, instead of moving ahead with confident assurance and what we know to be true. I'll never forget the experience I had in 1989. Went to Peru with three other guys to do some work down there with Burton, Colley, and Elliot. Burton Elliot is a brother of Jim Elliot, one of the missionaries that was killed by the Alcas in 1956. But Burton Colleen had been in Peru since 1949. So in 1989, they had been there 40 years, and God had used them to plant over 40 churches in the, the jungles of the Amazon and the mountains of Peru. And as the time was coming to a close and we were getting ready to leave, we sat down at the dining room table, and Bert started to reminisce about those 40 years. And he told us stories that I... I just amazed me. They were run out of town on the front end of stones being thrown at them. On more than one occasion, they were ridiculed. They were laughed at. They were spit upon. They were, you name it, it happened to them. And that was the time of dug out canoes and pith helmets. And Bert just sat and reminisced for probably 45 minutes, an hour, about how God had been faithful. And while they didn't have any natural children of their own, God had blessed them with thousands of children in Peru. And he came to the end of it, and he said this. He said, if I had to do it all over again, I wouldn't change a thing. And I thought, wow, <laughs> how does that happen? How do you get to the end of 40 years of that kind of ministry and be able to make that statement? I wouldn't change a thing. It's because he and Colleen were a man and woman of faith whose confidence was in the Lord, who believed that he loved them and directed and provided for their lives who knew how to listen to his voice and to move ahead as he 
directed. Scriptures are, are full of examples of the difference between self-confidence and, and God-centered confidence. I think about Moses. When confronted with the Egyptian killing the Israelites at the age of 40, the scripture says he looked this way and he looked that way, and then he killed the Egyptian, and of course it was found out, so he had to flee for his life. What the scripture doesn't say is that he looked that way. He never looked up. He looked this way and he looked that way, and he said, I can handle this. I got this. No problem. He'd grown up in Pharaoh's household. He'd been trained in military leadership. And he never consulted God as to whether this was the right thing to do or not. Self-confidence. Confidence in his own human strength. Forty years later, after he's been chasing woolies in the wilderness for those 40 years, God comes to him and says, Moses, now I want to use you. And Moses went, whoa. Well, you got the wrong guy. Who, me? I, I don't think they'll believe that you really are who I'm supposed to tell them you are. I, I don't know if they'll believe that, that you actually sent me. I, Lord, I, I can't do that. I've never been eloquent. And God answered, Moses, it's not about you. It's about me. I am who I am. That's what they need to know. That, that stick on the ground, pick it up and it turns into a snake. Put it back down, it turns into a stick again. God says, who is it that made your mouth, Moses? I will tell you what to speak. I'll teach you what to say. And finally, Moses becomes convinced and he returns to Egypt with confidence in the living God, instead of himself. So much confidence, he confronted the Pharaoh of Egypt that let my people go. Think of David. As a young man, displays incredible trust and confidence in God. He takes stones to a sword fight, for Pete's sake. He kills a lion and a bear. He says, I'll take on that giant, or... God will through me, and he does. But later in life, after the dastardly deed of taking another man's wife is done and realizing the evidence will soon become public, he says, I know what I'll do. I'll, I'll, I'll bring Bathsheba's husband home for the night. They'll have relationships, and there's no DNA back then. Nobody will ever know. Self-confidence. But God knew. And God exposed his sin. And instead of seeking God's strength to resist the temptation in the beginning, he resorts to human desire and justification. And based on his powerful position as a king, he commits adultery and then murder. Gideon's a man who Lack confidence. God comes, I want you to go and take care of the Midianites for me. And Gideon says, ah, blah, blah, I think you got the wrong guy, Lord. Pardon me. How can, how can uh, I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my family. And the Lord answers Gideon, 
not about you. I will be with you. And you will strike down the Midianites. Not about you, Gideon. It's about me. Peter. Lord, I'll never abandon you. Self-confidence. Jesus says, be careful, Peter. Not only will you abandon me, but you will deny you ever knew me. Examples are endless. The common thread is that those who moved ahead with confidence in the Lord, those who knew how to hear his voice and listen to his voice when he spoke, moved ahead by faith in a trustworthy God, were successful in what they did. And when they did things on their own, in their own strength, it was a mess every time. Every time. Daniel and the three Hebrew children, look at them. Think about those guys and the things they did. There are three things, I think, that we, we need to have confidence in. And the first one is this. And we need to have confidence that God is who he says he is. So who is he? If you're a regular attender here, you have heard this verse way more than once from Exodus chapter 34. The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate. He cares deeply about every need in your life. And not only does he care because he's a compassionate God, but he's a, a gracious God, and so he will provide whatever your need is. No charge. He's a God who's slow to anger, which, which tells us that he sometimes gets angry. He's just finished being angry with the Israelites a couple of chapters before that, if you read the context. But he's abounding in love. He's abounding in love, and it's because he loved those people so much and had such dreams for them as a nation that he, he got angry when they, when they rebelled against him. He cannot love you more, and he will not love you less than he does right now. And faithfulness, the same yesterday, today, and forever. Maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. There is nothing you have done and there is nothing been done to you that cannot be forgiven by a God who loves you as much as he does. And the verse goes on to say he does not leave the guilty unpunished. That's because he's a holy God. And because of that, he must deal with sin. And we either accept the punishment Christ took on the cross for our sin or we we choose to pay it ourselves. Now, I know there's a lot of voices today suggesting that, that some of these things about God are not true. You may even have had some doubts about them yourself due to circumstances in your life that you have a hard time explaining. You, even if you can't explain it all at times in difficult circumstances doesn't mean 
It's not true. It simply illustrates the limitations and shortcomings of our human understanding. If I could explain all of God, I'd be God, wouldn't I? I don't have to be able to explain it all to believe that he is these things. I like the quote that Gary Bashir's posted on Facebook on Christmas Day, a quote from Tim Keller that says this, a God who was only holy would not have to come down to us in Jesus Christ. He would simply demand that we pull ourselves together and that we be moral and holy enough to merit a relationship with him. A deity that was an all-accepting God of love would not have needed to come to earth either. This God of the modern imagination would have just overlooked sin and evil and embraced us. Neither the God of moralism nor the God of relativism would have bothered with Christmas. But he did. Because he is all of those things that he says he is. Someone has quipped, God created us in his image, and we have returned the favor. We like to create our own gods at times. God that sort of suits who we are, doesn't upset us too much. But the God we're talking about that we need to have confidence in is the God that's described in his word, as we've just said. I love Paul's words in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 when he says this, For who knows a person's thoughts except his own spirit within him? In the same way, no one knows the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. But what we have received is not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, so that we may understand what God has freely given us. The person without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, but considers them foolishness and cannot understand them because they are discerned only through the Spirit. And as many chances as I get, I often say to young people, understand this, that if your teachers and professors are not followers of Jesus and so are not indwelt by the Spirit of God, they don't have the ability to understand spiritual things. Don't expect them to. But understand they are speaking from human wisdom alone. Not all bad in and of itself, but limited in understanding. Don't be taken in by high-sounding arguments that seem to contradict the things of God by somebody who doesn't even know God. We need to have confidence that God is who he says he is, even if we can't explain or understand all we believe. But there's a second thing we need to have confidence in, and that is that God's word is what it claims to be. That God's word is what it claims to be. I've taken this directly from the Grace website on the doctrine of Scripture. It says this, 
When we speak of the doctrine of Scripture, we're referring to the authoritative 66 books of the Bible that make up the Old and New Testament and serve as the Christian's guide to belief about God and life with God. We believe that although God used human agents to write the Bible, they wrote exactly what he wanted them, wanted so that we can, be right, we can rightly say that the Bible is God's word. It is God's word in such a way that to disbelieve or disobey anything we find in Scripture is to disbelieve or disobey God. That is why it is so important to read and understand the Bible. It is the authority by which all other books teachings, and patterns of life are judged. It's the standard of God's truth given to us that helps us distinguish between what is true and what is false. And there's an incredible need for that in most of our lives today, to be able to distinguish between what is true and what is false. I love what Paul said to young Timothy. He says, all scripture is God-breathed, and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. The New Living Translation puts it this way, all scripture is inspired by God and is useful to teach us what is true and make us realize what is wrong in our lives. It corrects us when we are wrong, and it teaches us to do what is right. God uses it to prepare and equip his people to do every good work. There's a huge assumption when it says God uses it to prepare and equip people to do every good work. The assumption is that we actually read it and allow it to do its good work. It doesn't happen by osmosis. There are people who date today who reject the notion that all scripture is inspired. They, they question the veracity of the Old Testament and some of the stories there are just being, uh, you know, somebody just sort of made those up. How could those be the word of God? And, and some things that Paul says that they don't like, they just sort of go, no, nah, I, don't, I, I, I don't think those parts are inspired. But they'll, they'll usually affirm if they say they're followers of Jesus, I, what Jesus says is all true. Not any problem with Jesus. Just this other stuff get kind of gets a, a little fuzzy at times. The problem is, here's what Jesus said about the scriptures. But truly, I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter nor the least stroke of a pen, the crossing of a tear, the dotting of an eye, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. So if you say you believe everything Jesus said, you have a problem. You want to reject some of the other stuff because Jesus believed it all. And he said so. Concerning challenges against the veracity of Scripture, be careful not to just lie down and accept statements made against it without thorough examination. One of the things I did in preparation for this morning is I checked with Gary Brashear's uh, what was the best latest writings on this topic, the topic of the Word of God, and he recommended this book. Uh, can we still believe the Bible? Carl Bloomberg takes on all the major challenges to the veracity of Scripture, and he does a thorough deep dive on all of them, and he is so gut-level honest about some of those things we still don't understand. 
but that doesn't keep us from believing them. One of the things that really struck me in what Bloomberg says is this, I am continually impressed today as throughout my life with a number of people who claim to have intellectual objections to the historic Christian faith, and some of them genuinely do. But if I converse with them long enough, their biggest barriers are existential ones. They want to remain in charge of their own beliefs and behaviors and not submit to any ultimate authority outside of themselves. Becomes ultimately a matter, submission to authority, and that's a hard word for lots of people today. One of the most life-changing, faith-confirming studies I ever did early in my adult life was to work through the material contained in this book, by Bill McRae, The Birth of the Bible. I got it on on tape when Bill taught it as a, as a class and listened to it and ended up teaching it myself in the church I was in at that particular time. When I say I got it on tape, I mean reel-to-reel tapes. It was really a long time ago. When I, when I got that, Bill became a long-distance mentor for me after I had the chance to spend some time with him. And it's an absolutely wonderful study of how our Bible came to us, some of the challenges that we face understanding it, but what a great study. Another source, if this is of interest to you and it's a lot easier to get at, is the sermon that Gary preached on September 29th. It's on the Grace Community Church website. It's called The Bible, Our Foundation. We need to have a confident belief that the Word of God is what it says it is. But there's a third thing we need to have confidence in, and that is that you, as a child of God, are who God says you are. That you are who God says you are if you are a follower of Jesus, if you have put your trust and faith in Jesus Christ and become a child of God. Let me just run through a few of you, few of them from Ephesians chapter 1. He says this, for he has chosen us in him before the creation of the world. Not a, a random act of chance or the result of some mutation. God knew about you before the world was ever created and he chose you in him. You're predestined us for adoption to sonship. In the case you're thinking that's sort of gender insensitive, that's a technical term. It's used there, and that's why the word sonship is used in even the most modern translations, because it's, it's a, a, the adoption of sonship, the legal term in the Roman culture, but it includes all who are followers of Jesus, brothers and sisters included. Predestined us to adoption. You've been adopted as a child of the living God by his choice. He chose to make you his child. I think God could have worked out a plan where he sort of saved us from having to go to hell, but then didn't have much to do with us, but he didn't. He wanted to be much more than that. He wanted to be relationship. He wanted us to be his children, and he, he adopted us into his family. Verse 7 says, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, bought with the precious blood of Jesus. That's why Jesus came to pay the price for our sins so we could be redeemed and forgiven. Not only that, but he's made known unto us the mystery of his will, 
according to his good pleasure. And when you believe, you are, you are marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit. The supernatural takes up residence in the natural. Christ in me is what Paul talks about. You have to say it the way John Lynch says it, though. Christ in John Lynch. Christ in Jim Hislop. Christ in you. You're a child of God. Don't put that down as nothing. That makes you something special in the eyes of God. And then in Romans chapter 8, Paul reminds us, therefore, there's no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life set us free from the law of sin and death. We sang about it earlier. I love the way the true face guys put together the work of God in all of this when they say this. God is not making me into someone I'm not. He's maturing me into the person he says I already am. The moment we put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, all of those things I have just put up there for you from the word of God, whoosh, it all happened. And now, now that I'm a new creature in Christ Jesus, God is working into me, in me to mature me into that person. That's an incredible thought to ponder. You say, Jim, I, I hear what you're saying, but you, you don't know what I've done. You don't know what's been done to me. You're right, I don't. But here's what I do know. I know that what Christ did for you is much greater than anyone did to you. I sat with a young brother in a conversation about cultural issues that were going on. I was teaching a course at a college that's predominantly attended by African-American students, and some of them we're going on about some of the unfairnesses that have happened in our culture, and they have. And my good friend Jerry, who's from the, the islands, turned to them eventually, and he said, but all of that ended at the cross. All of that's been taken care of because of the cross. You need to walk in your new life in Christ. Isaiah 61, 3, the Lord says his heart is to bestow on them a, a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of joy instead of mourning, the garments of praise instead of the spirit of despair. I love, I love that song that I hear on the radio often lately. He's making diamonds out of dust. 
making diamonds out of dust. And you and I are that. There's a young lady named Christine Kane who's a Christian communicator who has a horrific story of rejection, of abuse, of mistreatment at the hands of people who should have treated her the best. And she says this about all that. She says, I determined to make the truth of the word of God more powerful than the facts of my circumstances. History doesn't have to determine your destiny. Jay, in his message on in February 3rd, said this, we must think of ourselves accurately through the lens of faith. Remembering who you are in Christ, we need to critically think through all we are bombarded with in light of God's word. And a week later, my young brother, Gabe Myers, that I just love, said, what did Jesus pursue as his treasure, us. Think about that. If this is an issue for you, thinking of yourself as God sees you, clearly from the word of God, let me recommend a few resources for you. I had hoped they would be on the back of the bulletin insert, but there's, I actually made a copy of these resources, and they're on the table at the back if these are of interest to you. One is the book called True Faced, Trust God and others with who you really are. And the other one is the book, The Cure. What if God isn't who you think he is and neither are you? <laughs> That's good. If you prefer a, a personal story, someone's personal journey, then John Lynch, who is one of the authors of those books, wrote a book called uh, On My Worst Day. And it's John's journey from slavery to sin to freedom in Christ. It's a marvelous book. John uh, tours with the singing group Mercy Me. Some of you have heard their, their songs lately, and one of the songs they sing is John's story, Dear Younger Me. If I knew then what I know now, that's the story of On My Worst Day. And then there's, if you prefer a novel, I'm going to read about these truths in a novel form, then Bo's Cafe. We'll do that for you. I must issue a warning as I close. We've just finished a great series on Do You See What I See? And one of those characters that we didn't give a whole sermon to was uh, King Herod. Sean talked about him last Sunday as he talked about the wise men. And I just need to remind you that we too have an enemy. And just as there was a Herod at the birth of Jesus, so too there are many today who would, who would seek to discourage you in your walk with God, cause you to doubt and to question your faith that God isn't who he says he is and the word of God is not what it claims to be and you're yeah, really not who God says you are. We're going to be moving into a new series next Sunday, and it's a study of the book of Galatians. Those are the churches in Galatia, and if you read through Acts chapter 13 and 14, which I'd recommend to you this week, you'll read about how those churches came into being, and 
And you'll see almost immediate opposition from the Judaizers, but you'll also see confident acceptance on the part of many, sometimes described as half the city, of the gospel of grace that Paul was preaching to them. But by the time Paul writes the book of Galatians to those churches, he has to say this to them. He said, I'm astonished that you're so quickly deserting the one who called you to live in the grace of Christ and you're turning to a different gospel. There's really no gospel at all. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion or trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. Don't let that happen to you. Far too many have. You and I, brothers and sisters in Christ, play a significant role in God's great plan for the ages. Don't let anyone tell you otherwise. Just because you can't answer all the questions, and I can't answer all the questions, about God or his word doesn't make them any less true, authentic, or believable. I want us to watch a video together for just a few minutes about an elderly lady in Czechoslovakia. And listen to the words that give away her constant, faithful confidence in the God of heaven on the video. In my lifetime, I have experienced the rule of two totalitarian regimes. One was the German Nazis, and the second was the Russian Communists. The Word of God says 366 times, do not be afraid, do not fear. So we weren't afraid. After 40 years of communism here, the fact that many believers left the country, the Czech Republic has been called the most atheist place in Europe. It breaks my heart. My name is Ludmila Hararova. I'm 82 years old. I have seven grandchildren and five great-grandchildren. My husband went to heaven in 2002. The Lord Jesus told me, now he is my husband, and he wants to continue to use me. He wants me to be his representative, his ambassador. Next to the door of my house, there is a bronze sign that says, the embassy of the kingdom of heaven. My home is an extension of Christ's kingdom. It's a place where people can come and look for help if they're in trouble or have a need. The Bible says the kingdom of heaven is joy and peace in the Holy Spirit. That is the atmosphere I want here at the embassy.
The visitors that I get, some of them have called ahead to let me know they're coming, and some just come. The ones that haven't called are usually the best ones because I'm not prepared for them. Everything that happens is dependent on the Lord. Today, a dear friend came by. She's a widow, and her family really are struggling financially. Whenever people enter this house, I just lay everything else aside and spend time with them. I have learned to recognize the inner voice of the Holy Spirit and give Him room to use me. The Holy Spirit likes to take control. Often I listen to myself and I'll say things I wouldn't even think about. There is no problem to deal with the issues people bring when they come here because the Holy Spirit is here. It's an honor for me to be an instrument of God's love and His wisdom every day. We often don't realize that all believers are called to be representatives of the Kingdom of Heaven. We are all ambassadors. The Lord Jesus didn't choose to do it any other way. He simply entrusted us. Be careful in what or who you put your confidence. Proverbs 25, 19 says, putting confidence in an unreliable person in times of trouble is like chewing with a broken tooth or walking on a lame foot. But Jeremiah says this, but blessed are those who trust in the Lord and have made the Lord their hope, and their confidence. Let's pray. Father, as we go from here being reminded of who you are, of what your word is, and who we are in Christ, I pray, Father, that wherever life takes us this week, as we move into a new decade, it's the office, the workbench, factory floor, the office, the hospital bed, the school classroom, wherever it is, Father. Help us remember that because Christ is in us, wherever we are, 
is an embassy of the kingdom of heaven. Help us, Father, to be ambassadors worthy of our King. And we'll give you the praise because it's all your good work. In Jesus' name, amen. Go in peace. Thank you for joining us for Sermon Audio from Grace Community Church here in Gresham, Oregon. For more information about service times and ways to follow us online, please go to gracecc.net. That's gracecc.net.